Let's pray. Well, Father, we, uh, we thank you for this opportunity to gather around your word and pray, please, you'd bless us through it. Uh, help us take heed to what it says. Help us grow in our devotion to you and our desire to follow and serve you, we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start with some repetition and say something that I, we, have said numbers of times before, uh, but the repetition can be important because it underlines something that is very important to hear, to, to uh, be saying. So if you've heard me say this before, this is why. Fundamental to the Christian faith, as Jesus taught it, is that Christianity is a religion of the Spirit. Let me say it again. Fundamental to the Christian faith, as Jesus taught it, is that Christianity is a religion of the Spirit. That is, if you're a Christian, something profound has happened to you, you have entered into an experience of the Spirit of God, who now dwells in you. It really is quite a monumental, fundamental truth one that we're going to look at together. Now, you might find that confronting this morning. There might be a couple of groups amongst us that find it a little bit confronting, a bit surprising perhaps. There's one group amongst us who um, have perhaps often critiqued some churches as not being spirit churches. Uh, if you've not been around Christian circles for very long, this might be news for you, but Christians actually do have a go at each other sometimes and uh, we have our different critiques. And it has been the case that uh, over the years, some people have thought of our church as not being particularly a spirit church. Um, but I, um, I want to offer that that is not the case. What's happened is that uh, a movement grew up some decades ago that so emphasised a particular experience as an experience of the Spirit that they judged that anyone who didn't have that experience was therefore not uh, a Spirit church. So let me say as firmly as I can, Christianity is fundamentally a Spirit experience. To be a Christian, to be a Bible church, is to be a Spirit Christian and a spirit church uh, and I want to fill that out today. But this uh, claim might be confronting for another group actually amongst us, if you've not been around long you'll be more familiar with this fact actually that in our society there are many people, uh, not, not amongst the church so much but there are many people who have a conviction that we ought not talk about the spirit, spirits and we ought to dismiss any notion of a supernatural spirit realm that all we have is matter and they see any talk of spirit and the spirit realm as somehow primitive, part of an unenlightened society that we need to grow out of, uh, and uh, it's part of a superstitious world. So as a society, we've tended to stop thinking of a spirit realm, talk of the spirit in the same way. We don't talk about unicorns and, and um, uh, 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 fairies and so on. We, we no longer talk about the spirit. But we must, because it's here in the Bible, and because... If you do have any conviction about there being a divine, a God, as the vast majority of humanity has and does still, even in the Western world, if you are convinced there is a God of some kind, then you are immediately forced to come to terms with the fact that there's a non-material reality. There is one at least who is spirit. Uh, you, you are driven to that. And interestingly, incidentally, there was a very compelling, interesting book written some years ago called Mind and Cosmos by a man called Nagel, who was a philosopher from America, who, um, who an atheist, who explored the, the reality, the phenomena of humans having a mind, consciousness, that wasn't reducible to the physical. 
and began then to ponder what that might mean for the universe, whether there was a cosmos with a mind. Uh, He was ostracised for all of this, but nonetheless his thinking was quite profound and and, uh, very helpful. The million-dollar question, though, with all of this is, what does it look like to have a spirit experience? What does it look like to be a person who is in touch with the spirit of God? What does the church look like that's a spirit church? This is fundamental to us to wrestle with. Uh, And these chapters in the Bible are the place to dig, chapters 14 to chapter 16 of John's Gospel. If you want to look for parts of the Bible that talk about the spirit of God, what you have here in chapters 14, 15 and 16 is some of the richest, deepest, fullest teaching in one place on the Spirit of God. You'll get, of course, many other contexts and places where the Spirit's talked about, but this is the particular one. And so uh, this is where we want to, I want to actually tease out some of this for us, particularly today as we're working our way through these chapters. But I want to offer this, that as you go through these chapters and look at the language of the Spirit here, you'll see that there's something far more profound going on than simply engaging with the modern disputes of 21st century Christianity. It won't talk to us about whether tongues is there or miracles, it won't do any of that conversation and so if you're hungry for those issues, this part of the Bible won't answer them at all but what it will do is actually take you into a far deeper, bigger, more profound and important context to consider the work of the Spirit. And so what I want to do with you today is take you through this section and enter into Jesus' world, enter into his frame, his thinking, so that we might see the way he sees the Spirit and the Spirit's role in our lives. It is a big topic with some controversies and we're going to tackle some more of the controversies actually uh, in eight days' time. So Monday night coming up, not tomorrow but Monday coming up, we're going to tackle the whole topic of the Spirit speaking. So I invite you to come along to that as well. That'll be the beginning of a three-week thing, but you can come for the first night, of course. So it's a big topic. Let me now give you the context uh, of all of this. It's, you remember from last week, it's the last night of Jesus' earthly life, um, or pre-crucifixion. Uh, it's massive. It's a very deeply emotional time. There's a lot of teaching that Jesus gives here from chapter 13 on. And in the midst of it, he drops this bombshell... If you've got your Bibles, turn up to chapter 13, uh, verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus, troubled in spirit, testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. So there's the bombshell. One of you is going to betray me. And if you go a little bit further over to verse 33, I will be with you only a little longer. I'm leaving. Now that is a bombshell. Um, they've given up everything to follow Jesus. They've left homes, family, jobs, they've embraced shame, they've uh, taken on the pain of travelling all over the place, they've done all of that, they've left it all behind because they've believed that having connected themselves to Jesus, there was a wonderful, bright future ahead of them with Jesus. He was the conquering hero that they were going to follow along behind. But he now says, you've left everything, here we are in Jerusalem, I'm now going. And they're going, what? We moved to be with the kids and the kids have now left. 
Do you know what I mean? You know that, parents? The kids have moved to another town or city, you move to be with them and suddenly they uproot and go, they come back to the central coast and there you are lost in some stupid place like Foster. I don't know. <laughs> it's just, you're left in some retirement village, capital of the world. And, and here you are, Jesus... <laughs> I don't know why I picked Foster, but here we go, Foster's a beautiful place. But, but here you are, Jesus... Jesus has uh, taken this crowd, they've left everything to come with him and says, I'm now going and leaving you. So there's a great deal of emotion and grief. Now he's aware of this emotion because in chapter 14 he says to them a number of times, verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Thanks. And then he says again in verse 27, do not let your hearts be troubled, do not be afraid. He's aware of all the emotion that's going on. But he does more than just say, don't be afraid. He gives them a series of teachings telling them why he needs to go and why with his going it will be better for them. You look interestingly at chapter 16 verse 6 or verse 5, but now I'm going to him who sent me, none of you asks where are you going, rather you're filled with grief because I've said these things but very truly I tell you it's for your good that I'm going away. It's for your good. It's a good thing. It's the best thing for you that I go away. And you might find yourself going, why? Why is it better that you, our Lord, leaves us? Why is that better? Well, then he gives a series of answers and it has to do with the Holy Spirit of God. Come with me to chapter... I'm going to take you through four sayings of Jesus about the Spirit. There's five here, but I'm going to leave the fifth one to the Monday that's coming up. Have a look with me at chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus here talks about the coming of another advocate. Now, just a little word on that comment on that word advocate. Some of you will have different translations, it will use a different word at that point. Sometimes it says, uh, the old NIV said another, another um, counsellor. Uh, if you've got an ESV, it will say another helper. Um, these are all different attempts to translate a Greek word, the word paraclete. And it's a tricky word to make fuller sense of because it's got a rich sort of set of ideas. And all those, you know, advocate, counsellor, helper, all kind of useful ways, as long as you don't think, so counsellor, as long as you don't think the advocate, the, the paraclete, counsellor means someone you sit within a room and get counselled by someone who comforts you with a blanket and keeps you warm. It's not that idea. Advocate really is not a bad kind of capturing the sense of a legal advocate, someone who will contend for you, speak for you. Uh, Just as Jesus has led, taught, protected, provided, this new advocate, you see how he says, another advocate... So just like I've been your advocate, another advocate's coming, another counsellor, another helper is coming. He will do all of this now for you. But importantly, this advocate, this paraclete, won't fulfil this role until Jesus is gone. John 7, 
chase it up later. In John chapter 7, Jesus says it's not until uh, certain circumstances uh, my leaving that the Spirit will come. And so it's not until all of that occurs that the Spirit does come. Now, who receives this gift of the Spirit, though? Who receives this another advocate to live with you and be in you? Who receives this gift? We'll have a look there again at verse uh, 15. If you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Who is it who receives this advocate, this spirit who will live with you forever? It's those who love the Lord Jesus and keep his commands. A couple of things to say there. Um, It's not two things. It's not those who love me and keep my commands as if you can love Jesus but not keep his commands. It's not as if there's a group of people who love him but don't keep him and there's a group who love and keep. No, no, no. What Jesus says is, if you love me, that is, be one who keeps my commands, because John 15, that's what it is to love Jesus. And it's not so much a legalistic condition that it's only if you keep all the commands this happens. It's rather a description of those who will receive this gift, this gift of the helper, the spirit who will come to help. It's those who love the Lord Jesus and so keep his commands. You're not perfect, you're not in every essence, of course we're sinful, but who seek now to desire to obey Jesus and walk with him as our Lord. These are the ones who receive this gift. Now this is important to to understand. It's not some Christians who get the gift and others don't. It's not some people who love the Lord Jesus and seek to live under his lordship who get the gift and others who love the Lord Jesus and don't get it. It's not as if you have to keep a set of conditions in addition in in the sense that I've got to tarry and I've got to go through this experience and I've got to make sure. No, no, no. Jesus is everybody. All of you who love me and seek to live under my lordship, you receive this advocate, this help. Now, this is also a massively significant moment in human history. Right here, there's something profound is being said. God is now said to come and dwell in a human. God is now said to come and be in the very inner being of a person. Now, that is a profoundly monumental moment in human history because up until this point, you remember in history, there was an occasion where one people on the earth actually built a structure called the temple, the tabernacle, and had God dwell in their midst. The Spirit of God descended the glory of God into the temple and dwelt amongst the people where they could, one of them could go in and so on. That was an extraordinary thing. But then there was an occasion in John chapter 1 verse 14 where that same God comes into the very person of a man, the Lord Jesus, takes on flesh and is born amongst us. As it tabernacles is literally what it says, becomes one amongst us, God in flesh walking around. Extraordinary. But what Jesus is now saying is that incredibly, The same God who creates the universe, flung stars into space, speaks words to bring everything, is infinite, unbelievably powerful. That God, now by His Spirit, will dwell in the heart of even you and me. 
an astonishing movement. But notice this, this spirit who comes is Jesus. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. I will come to you. And if you look at verse 23, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, my Father will love him and we will come and make our home with them. This is the mystery of the nature of the triune God. He can't be reduced. If you meet Jesus, if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father, because in the Son, God is present. If you have an experience of the Spirit, you're having an experience of God Himself in His fullness. If the Spirit comes, He is the Spirit of Jesus. So Jesus comes and brings the Father because God now comes in the Son by the Spirit. This blows apart any idea that you can have a Jesus Christian and a Spirit Christian. Now, it blows about the idea that you can have a Jesus church and a spirit church. That's a Jesus church, not a spirit. This is a spirit church. It blows apart. Now, that kind of thinking is either just mistaken and confused, and I think a lot of it is just that. It's not evil, it's just confused. But at worst, what it is, is the construction of a new way of thinking about God himself. That God is three separate persons that you can have one of the people, persons of the Trinity and not the other. Well, that's a whole new concept of who God is that has never been understood in the Bible. God is one God, Father, Son and Spirit. To receive one person of the Godhead is to receive God. And notice too that this helper, verse 16, 17, is the spirit of truth. The spirit that the world does not know, cannot know. Why? Because it cannot receive the truth. This spirit is the spirit of truth. We'll come back to this in a moment. But just let me land this again for us. Friends, this is a, this is a, a monumental, astonishing, beautiful, wonderful truth. That, that if you are someone who loves the Lord Jesus and is seeking to live under his lordship, saved by his merits through the cross, you have God... Father, Son and Spirit dwelling in you. You have God and Father, Son making their home with you. The Spirit is now dwelling in you, ordinary believer. It's an astonishing thing. There's the first saying of Jesus. Let me look at the next one, chapter 14, verse 26. When the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, the work of the Spirit here, he is known as the teacher. He will teach you. He will bring also to mind, to remembrance, all the things I've said to you, verse 26. Now that last little piece reminds us, actually teaches us that the work of the Spirit in its entirety is not for us. There are some dimensions of the work of the Spirit that are particular to that first group of apostles. And how do you know that? Well, you know that because the promise is that the Spirit will 
remind you of everything I've said to you. Remind you of everything I've said to you. Our problem is, we weren't there to have him say it to us. This promise only applies to those who were there, who heard him teach Jesus say things, so that the Spirit now reminds them of everything Jesus taught, so that they get it right. That promise is particularly to them. But it is also for us in the sense that we can now be confident that their memories and recollections will be true and accurate. Because they're spirit-inspired recollections. It assures us that when we read the apostolic testimony about Jesus, we are not just reading their fallible efforts to remember what happened. We are reading the very work of the Holy Spirit of God. We can therefore trust their witness. That's why that verse is there to tell us what's gone on so that we can trust the witnesses and the apostolic voice that they bring by the power of the Spirit. You see, one more piece of relevance here actually is the fact that in this context too, the Holy Spirit, verse 26, the advocate is called the Holy Spirit. You may not have noticed this, but up until this point, except one occasion, the Spirit is not called the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel. The first time it's, the, the Spirit is described as the Holy Spirit is back in John the Baptist's ministry where he talks about the one to come who will baptise in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Now, I want to suggest to you the use of it here reminds us, emphasises the fact that this advocate, this Spirit who comes to dwell in us, comes to dwell in us for the sake of holiness. Which fits perfectly the description of the person to whom the Spirit comes. Who does the Spirit come to? Well, the one who loves Jesus and obeys his teaching. The one who loves Jesus and keeps his word. And that's all the case because the spirit who now dwells in us is the Holy Spirit who stirs us to love the Lord Jesus, love his word and obey it. That is the very shape of the work of the spirit amongst us. Let me try and summarise some of this. What experience should you expect from a people who are indwelt by the spirit of God? You can, you can put this together now. What, what experience should you expect from someone who is fully alive to the work of the Spirit in their lives? What should you expect from a church that's a spirit church, where the Spirit is among us and dwelling and working? And What should you expect of a church? Well, a spirit person will be one who loves the Lord Jesus loves his word, loves his teaching from that word and who loves to obey that word. It's very ordinary things but profoundly extraordinary when you understand them through spiritual eyes. If you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you and you haven't grieved the Spirit, you're walking in step with the Spirit, you should expect a life of one who grows in their love for Jesus, their love of his word, his teachings, the love of those that taught, led by the Spirit to teach us, the apostles, who love therefore the Bible and seek to want to obey. It's very simple and very ordinary but quite spectacular. A spirit church, therefore, what would you expect of a spirit-filled church? A community of people who love God's word, love his teaching, love to learn to obey God in his word, now, I'm not saying, of course, that every sermon you listen to will be amazing. I'm not saying, you, you know, you just hang on every word of every preacher. Sometimes we struggle to preach well. 
but what I am saying, there'll be a, a growing instinct and desire to want to know what God has to say, to dig, dig into His Word, to hear, hear it and heed it. And if you're finding that experience occurring in you, that's evidence of the Holy Spirit of God. And I'm not saying too that it means you'll know lots of stuff, that you'll have the answers in a theological quiz. That's why the word love matters. It's anyone who loves me. Now, love isn't reduced to a feeling, but it is an affection. It's the affection of desiring Jesus, wanting Jesus, wanting to have His Word in my life. Now, all of this is completely different to what people call spirituality today. If you uh, go in our community, you'll find lots of people who talk about being spiritual. Uh, Usually it goes like this, you know, I'm not into religion, I'm a spiritual person. I'm not into church and all the organised religion, I'm a spiritual person. And when you dig into what it means to be spiritual, uh, usually it kind of has a number of features and I'll offer some of the features, they run along these lines. Usually it means that we're not into words, You know, we're into meditating and connecting with the divine beyond words. We're about experiences and being in touch. Often being a spiritual person means being amoral. Not not immoral, but amoral. Being a spiritual person means you're not bound by laws and expectations and oughts. And there'll be a much greater tolerance for everyone to do their thing because we're all spiritually united in some fashion. But please notice that that kind of spirituality is completely at odds with the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God is in a person, they'll care about words because He is the Spirit who teaches, who reminds the apostles of the things He taught. We'll be people who love His Word, the words. We'll be interested in learning and growing. But more than that, we will be interested in obeying, submitting to, keeping his commands, recognising there are boundaries to what it is to be in Christ's kingdom. Let's go to the third one. John 15, verse 26. Flip over there. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... Now, it's Jesus who sends the Advocate. When, I, when the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, He will testify about Me. He will testify. The Spirit will be one who testifies or gives witness. Now, you um, just try and think this one through. If you call in a legal trial, a witness to the, to the, into, the, into the courtroom or you call someone to testify, what is it you expect them to do if they're doing it properly? Let me, I'll give you this sentence and you finish it for me. The sentence is this, um, just to try and get your brains thinking, right? Um, you, you, what we want you to do is, is come into the courtroom and testify to what you've seen and heard but you must do it Truthfully, you're much better than 8.30. (laughs) You must do it truthfully. Well, the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth, verse 26. 
I'll send you from the Father the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me. He will testify to the truth of who I am and what I've done. He will testify to the truth. But he will testify to the truth of Jesus. He will testify about me. Notice this. This is a critical implication for us today. The Spirit. He is the Spirit of truth who bears witness to Jesus. That is, he is given into our world to bear witness to Jesus. This is picked up later in chapter 16, verse 14, where we're told that Jesus says, He will glorify me, because it's from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The Spirit comes to bring glory to the Son, Jesus. Just follow this through. Nowhere is it said in the Bible that the Spirit will testify to himself or bring glory to himself. He comes to testify to Jesus, to glorify the Son, Jesus. That is his role. He is given to the spirits to empower them to bring testimony to Jesus. There's an old illustration of this that I found helpful some decades ago, so I'll share it with you. It's the illustration of the auctioneer's assistant. When you go to an auction, which I've never done actually, but when you go to an auction or watch it on TV, you'll see someone bring, uh, some people bring in an artwork uh, carrying it in, the auctioneer's assistants, and as they carry in the artwork, the aim of their work is entirely about showing you the piece of art, not themselves. Now, you may well know they're holding it because you can see their fingers or their feet, but the job that they do, if they do it well, will be to cause you to see the artwork and not them. The Holy Spirit of God is the auctioneer's assistant to Jesus, if I can put it crassly. His role is to point us to Jesus, to testify to Jesus, to elevate Jesus, to bring glory to Jesus. Now get this, you see, what experience would you expect to happen in a church that's alive to the Spirit, the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of truth, whose purpose is coming to testify to the truth to Jesus? What would you expect to see in a Spirit church, therefore? A lot of talk about Jesus, a lot of upholding of Jesus. There's a great uh, irony, tragedy, deep concern in much of the modern spiritual movement that often says much more about the spirit. Now again, it could just be a desire amongst churches who talk a lot about the Holy Spirit to try and correct it, what they perceive to be an imbalance and there might be something wonderfully appropriate about that for them. At its best, that's what it is, but at its worst, at its worst, we are right to be suspicious whether the Spirit is even present there. So a church that talks all about the Spirit and eclipses Jesus is probably not a Holy Spirit church, ironically. Now just note all this, this is all building, it's coming together because I want to come to the last one that we're looking at today, the fourth promise which is in chapter 16 verse 8, turn there. But let's read a little bit earlier than that, verse 7. Very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus is saying again, it's to your advantage I go. You're better off if I'm not here. And you find yourself going, how can we be better off without the physical Lord Jesus? How can we be better off without him? Wouldn't it be far greater to have him amongst us? 
Now, it's possible he's talking like this because he's going to the cross and he's saying, it's better I go, go to the cross and die and pay for sins and make it possible for sinners to be forgiven through the merits of my death on their behalf. It's possible he's talking about that. But Jesus says, if I do not go, the helper won't come. It's better because, why is it better? Here it is. Because there's a far greater work that can now happen with the coming of the Advocate, the Spirit of God. There's something far bigger and broader and more all-encompassing that can now happen because Jesus goes and sends the Spirit. What is that bigger thing? What could be bigger than Jesus dying for our sins? What could be bigger than uh, making it possible for our sins to be paid for and rising destroy death? What could be bigger than that? What's bigger? Applying all of that to the world. Making it possible for people across the whole planet to hear the gospel, be convicted of sin, judgment and righteousness and so come and be saved. It's a radical truth but without divine intervention we would never see the truth of our sin, the judgment to come and the need for Jesus. Without the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit who testifies to Jesus, who convicts the world, unless that Spirit comes, our world is lost And you see why Jesus is saying it's better that I goes away? It's better that I go away because unless I go, the Spirit who brings conviction won't come. But with my leaving, the Spirit who comes to bring conviction can actually apply my death, my resurrection, the power of all of that into sinners in every nation across the whole planet, throughout all of history. It's better that I go because people can be saved. It's only with the coming of the Spirit that the disciples now, all disciples, us included, are able to witness to the truth in the face of the world's hostility. We're able by the Holy Spirit to keep speaking and testifying. With the return of Jesus to the Father, the age of the Spirit begins, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of witness to the truth, the Spirit who convicts the world... Now, there's a fifth statement there in chapter 16, verse 12, 13, 14, about being guided by the Spirit. We're going to look at that Monday week. So come along to that Monday night. Where does all of this, though, land for us today? What do we do with all of this? Well, it's an affirmation and a reminder that the Jesus event was monumental. You see... It isn't about, the coming of the Spirit isn't about whether you speak in tongues or whether you see miracles happen in church. When Jesus raises the topic of the Spirit on the last night before his crucifixion, it's to talk of the massive movement of human history under God's sovereign hand. It's to talk about the fact of God in his holiness being opposed by a world in its rebellion fast-tracked towards the judgment of God. It's to talk of these monumental truths and say in the midst of this, there is a beautiful thing that God is determined to seek and save the lost by the power of His Spirit. There is the context of this beautiful truth that God now too will be able to dwell in each of us 
The hope of the Old Testament is now fulfilled in the most glorious way, a way beyond imagining that God, Father, Son and Spirit, by the work of the Spirit, applying the work of Jesus' death, are now in your life. And just to listen to Mandy is to be reminded of the power of the Spirit who sustains her and Tony and the family through the midst of many trials. The Spirit comes to help to uphold and strengthen us. By the power of the Spirit, we're able to cry out, Abba, Father, and have an intimate relationship with God the Father because He's not far from us, He's with us. He dwells in us. And He is the Spirit of Christ who has overcome. And by His power in our lives, we can overcome. It's a great blessing and encouragement, but it's bigger than all of this. You see, Jesus looks out on the world... And he sees that there are things far more serious than our particular trials. What he sees is judgment to come, a rebellious world that's lost without the saving news of Jesus. And he sees that the only hope of that news of his death and resurrection penetrating into fallen human hearts is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, it's better that I go away Because God can now come by His Spirit to cause this message to break into stubborn human hearts, remove hearts of stone and bring hearts of flesh, bring salvation and a hope of eternity, to give us a hope of being saved. And so the Spirit comes and enables now a witness to the world of these things. That there is a judgment. There is a righteousness to be found in Jesus that makes ours look so poor. That there is sin that's real. That there is only a hope that's found in all of this. You know, these men loved Jesus and his loss was devastating. But because they began to see how much the world mission mattered, they were thrilled. In the coming of the Spirit, it was possible now to seek and save. So friends, let me pull it all together. What's the mark of a spirit of a spirit Christian? What's the mark of the spirit in a Christian's life? It's not spectacular, exciting things, unless you've got the eyes to see. Friends, don't be afraid that because I'm not doing this or living up to that, what's the mark of the spirit in a Christian's life? It's that you know the Lord Jesus, you love the Lord Jesus. You love his word, you want to obey his word more, you want to become more like Jesus, that is the spectacular evidence of the power of Jesus in your life by his Holy Spirit. If that's happening in your life, yes, ups and downs, but if you see that happening, praise God, God is dwelling with you. You're not on your own, he has not left you as an orphan, you have help in this present trouble, he is with you to cry, Abba, Father. What is the evidence of a church that has the Holy Spirit alive and well? It's not the spectacular, it's not tingles up and down the spine. It's certainly not about getting rid of words and wordless meditation, it's about Jesus. It's about being a church that elevates Jesus, His glory, His greatness, His majesty, what He has done for us, that we're drawn to love Him and adore Him and that we seek to know His Word and submit to His Word and obey His Word and that we be a church that testifies to the world about Jesus, that we be on mission.
So I want to pray that you give yourself to these things more and more. Take heart, be encouraged, but be stirred as well to keep in step with this spirit. I'm going to pray in a moment, but why don't you bow your heads, take a moment to think and reflect on these things. I'm going to ask you to reflect on a particular thing while I invite the musicians up. Um, friends, why, just sitting there, perhaps just, just reflect on, are you seeing these evidences in your life? Is there a love of Jesus, a love of his word, a desire to obey him and a desire to testify? Is, there, is this evidence there? If it's not, pray. Pray that he might fan into flame the spirit in your life. If you're seeing these evidences, give thanks and pray that he would give you the power to keep in step and grow in these things. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you would um, fan into flame the work of your Spirit amongst us, that more and more we would be a people, this would be a church that points people to Jesus, that lifts him up, that grows in our love and adoration of him, our desire to sit under your word and obey it. Please let these things grow amongst us, we ask. But more particularly, we pray that you would cause the Spirit's work amongst us to lead to testifying, that, that the, the name of Jesus would be spoken around this region and that people would be brought to faith in him, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.